Hello, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the fourth episode of Young, Muslim, and Talented with me, Mohammed Randari. I am honored and excited to have my um, friend, um, Imran Haq, Dr. Imran Haq, I should say, um, on our program. Um, Dr. Imran, would you like to say hello to our listeners? Yes, assalamu alaikum, everyone. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on, firstly. No, it's it's great to to have you here, and and, and um, Dr. Imran, hope you don't mind me sharing, but you you're sitting in 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 your parents' house this morning, which I think is a wonderful thing. As um, <laughs> you, you know, it's great that we can reconnect, I guess, with our families sort of post this strict lockdown phase. But I also, Absolutely. I'm sure you have some thoughts on whether it's too early or not <laughs> for this to be happening. Well, just, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to take up too much time, but I just want, I mean. We were, a lot of us argued about the late, um, kind of the late imposition of the lockdown. So a lot of us were thinking, if we didn't trust the lockdown on the way in, then should we really trust them on the way out? But, you know, I'll, I'll leave that. I don't want to get too political. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a bit cynical about it as well. You know, I, it seems like more of an economical move than anything else, um, which is, I, I, look, I think in this day and age, we all have to be our own kind of skeptical. We have to consume our own information and, and make decisions based on what we think is best for us. But um, yeah, but it is what it is. At least we can reconnect with our families, which I think is a positive thing. <laughs> Um, so I know our listeners are very, very excited because this, you're our first doctor on our program. And, and oh, you know, of course, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in our communities, you know, uh, the, being a doctor is a very prestigious thing. Uh, and, you know, everyone wants to be a doctor. I, even I wanted to be a doctor growing up. Um, but it'd be interesting to just, to begin with, just hear um, from you what your journey to becoming a doctor was, where did your interest uh, initially um, start off from, and um, is it something, I guess I've just asked this question off the bat, but is it a case of your parents wanted you to become a doctor, or did Imran wanted to become a doctor? Well, it's interesting that actually, yeah, I mean, my parents didn't want me to become a doctor. So, wow. Um, the, yeah, because when... I mean, kind of when I was growing up, my parents, I mean, my father's a university lecturer, mum's an artist. Um, my dad wanted me to go into a hard science or um, a hard art, you know, kind of a, um, a, a more singular subject rather than medicine itself. Um, it's the sort of thing where I don't think even up until, you know, I was in year nine, I wasn't really a great student at school either. In year nine, I ranked 63rd out of 105 people at my school. I remember the time that I was, you know, that I'd, I was captain of the school cricket team and everyone else had done really well in the team. And I was, I was the, you know, <laughs> I ranked the worst. So it really hit hard at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that I would become a doctor. But um, it, it was, I, mean, I, I don't, I can't really remember the specific. Um, do you, there's a, a guy, there's a program called Superhuman on BBC. Um, Robert Winston, Professor Robert Winston, as he now is, um, he mm-hmm. would, based in Imperial College and he would do these shows on television um, and I just really in the child of a time that was on as well where they'd follow a select group of kids over every year for 20 years so I'd watch these sort of programs on TV and I was thinking yeah you know I really I really like that I discussed it with my with my teachers at school and he was like well you know tell your dad it's more of an art than a science mm-hmm. uh, um, and that might persuade him and my parents were like yeah I mean if you go for it you know <laughs> if you go for it if you don't get it it doesn't. It doesn't matter. 
Um, but alhamdulillah, I got it. Um, and uh, I got my offers for the university. Um, mm-hmm. None of my teachers at school thought I would. And here I am. Fantastic. I mean, so you mentioned university there. So, so where, did, where did you go um, for, for your undergrad and, and what, what was that like? Um, I went to Oxford. I went to Queen's College, Oxford. That was um, bizarre. Um, I, I remember at school that um, the kids that they thought would go into Oxbridge, they would get special sessions from the headmaster. Um, and evidently, they didn't think I was one of them. So I didn't get any of that. Um, and I and I'd never been to, I had a cousin who was studying at Cambridge, he was doing physics. And that's the sort of thing my parents wanted me to go down. Um, I uh, I literally picked the college by looking through the prospectus, the college that had the prettiest pictures. I picked that one. Um, I remember kind of two days before the interview saying to my dad that um, I'm really scared, I don't know if I'll get in. Because they did a written exam, then there were two interviews over the course of three days. And it was the first time I'd been away from home as well um the interview was bizarre and these are the sort of things that you know kind of reinforce your faith in god uh the i don't know if you remember when you were younger you i'm, I'm a few years older than you there's a program called how to on itv um so they would kind of mm-hmm. ask lots of different questions uh and try and answer them and um, there was also a, a program on ITV called Dimbleby, which is bizarre that kind of the few months before my interview, two of the questions they asked at my interview were discussed on Dimbleby, which was, you know, talk about equity in healthcare. Um, and they were asking this um, guy for the World Health Organization who was talking about um, uh, how, you know, the malaria vaccine, uh, nobody develops it because it's for poor countries. So they asked me that question in the interview. And they also um, asked me a question about the Galilean principle. Um, you know, you've got dice hanging. What happens when the car moves forwards? Those sort of questions. Again, that was answered on how to. And I remember, like, I actually, from thinking, where am I? You know, I'm in this building that was built in 1350, 1349. I, um, you know, everyone's using their knives and forks to eat. Um, <laughs> and is, is this food halal? I don't know. Literally, when I asked, I, can, I can't eat the chicken. Is it halal? They're like, what's halal? If you're not going to eat meat, here's a bowl of salad. It's literally what they gave me for my dinner. That was a vegetarian food back then. Um, So going from that, I remember getting goosebumps in my interview because I was suddenly like, oh my God, I know the answers to these questions. Um, So when I actually got my offer, I went back to school and my teachers didn't believe me. And my brother texted me saying a letter's come through saying gone to Oxford. I remember I was in chemistry. I told my teacher, he's like, is your brother lying to you? Um, and then I told the deputy head when we had, it was the final day before Christmas. I was telling the deputy heads on the way into the assembly that, oh, I've got an offer at Oxford. He's, he didn't believe me. Um, there you go. And do you think, do you think, I mean, do you think the way people reacted had something to do with, with, your, with who you were or you were Muslim or, or do you um, think it was just a surprise because they kind of maybe, you know, didn't expect it? And it had nothing think, to do with... I, I don't think I had anything. No, I think it was the latter mm. more than anything mm. because the school, mm. I mean, the, there were certain teachers who were very, very encouraging and they obviously saw me for who I was. I mean, I wasn't even sure who I was at the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was up until probably year nine, I was really quiet. I was just good at cricket. That's it, nothing else. Um, and then one of my form teachers encouraged me to get into debating, started doing that. And then I gained confidence. But I don't think the, I think the teachers didn't expect it from me because I was such a mediocre student. You know, I was a nothing. I was a nobody up until year nine. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, year 10, year 11, I started doing well and came from nowhere. So um, that's probably the reason why um, they probably thought. So a lot of the time, I guess, in Asian culture, we're very, we're brought up to be quite polite and respect hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of schools where, you know, there's a very English and old school, I went to grammar school where, you know, there were a lot of, almost everyone's Caucasian. I guess they're the children a bit more bolshy and the teachers mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. interpret a polite young brown boy as someone who's subservient. They just thought, oh, he's very timid rather than realizing, well, my parents just didn't bring me up to abuse people. <laughs> so then, I mean, I've, that experience at Oxford, how do you think it shaped you, I guess, as an individual? I mean, did did you feel out of place? Um, were you made to feel welcome there? And also, I have to get your view on which is the best um, college, because I know it's debatable, but um, and you can't say Queens, because <laughs> yeah, I know you went there. <laughs> well, I mean, the... I, I don't. I don't think the college matters so much, especially these days. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first went, I literally remember that um, I went there, and it was in the newspaper, the college newspaper. The you know the University of Oxford is the Oxford Student was a newspaper. And one of the articles was saying that you know that out of twenty thousand people that are at Oxford, only three were of Bangladeshi origin. Um, and and my college because there was six hundred. My college is quite a small college. It's a really old one, thirteen forty nine, I think, thirteen forty eight or something. It was mm-hmm. founded, and I was the only, I was like one or two non-white people at the college. Um, it was, the nice thing about the college was it was a really Christian ethos college, so they did understand when I'd say to them that, you know, I'm uh, Muslim and I believe in God. No one abused me for that. No one laughed at me. No one ridiculed me. Um, the chaplain was also, he's a lovely guy, um, uh, and he would come and, you know, he had allocated time with everyone, and he would talk to me as well about my faith, and he's really knowledgeable about Islam as well. I mean, I was... You know, I was really surprised. Um, it's, the people are really, really nice. Um, I didn't, don't think, I don't, I don't feel I face any discrimination at all. It's just, it's really, um, when you go somewhere where culturally it's very different, um, mm-hmm. that's probably the biggest shock. Where again, it's the insecurities on my part where I've never been anywhere like this before. You know, mm-hmm. kids at Eton, the reason why they fit into establishment so well is because Eton is a mini version of an Oxford college. Then you go to uh-huh. Oxford where it's just like Eton. And then you go into Westminster, which is just like Oxford. Uh-huh. Um, so it's the, you know, for them, they're entirely comfortable. Whereas I remember my first year at Oxford, I wasn't very comfortable. Um, and then as I kind of got used to the surroundings, et cetera, um, and the way people behaved and the way the institution behaved, um, I felt more comfortable. Uh-huh. The, I guess what the way, one of the ways it set me up is that it, they really push you intellectually. Like you have to write four essays a week and each essay is 2,500 words. So you learn to work under pressure. And I slowly realized that, man, I can do these things. It's like before I thought I couldn't. I thought I really couldn't do any of these things. Then you suddenly realize I can. And if I want to, I can. You know, I'm, I just. It's really empowering. That. Yeah, that's yeah, really, really empowering. Really empowering. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to pick up on the point that you, you, you talked about. Eton being um, a mini sort of ecosystem that replicates Oxford. And I sometimes feel that within our own communities, I went to an Islamic school, right? We don't create those types of high standards. I'm not saying we have to replicate the cultural environment, but the high standards that are expected in from these institutions is a good thing. And we should be, you know, uh, making sure that uh, uh, from a very young age, our kids are given that training so that, you know, if the options are 
um, available to them when they have to make the choice. But I, I also want to talk about so your Islamic beliefs, especially learning about uh, things when it comes to medicine. You know, it's, everything's very kind of scientifically based, based in fact. For example, scientifically, we haven't proven the existence, for example, of, of a soul, right? Mm. I mean, and so how do, you, how do you reconcile those differences sort of in fact versus belief? I reconcile them quite easily. Um, when I was, mm. I remember when I was at, um, kind of when I was a teenager, kind of Islam appealed to me more on an intellectual level than a spiritual level. It's only now that I'm older that I understand the spirituality. You know, everyone talks about, um, you know, mindfulness how you must take it. You know, when you pray five times a day, there's mindfulness there. So the spiritual side didn't actually appeal to me originally. Um, the intellectual side did. And I mean, I slowly realized, again, <laughs> thank you to Robert Winston for, 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 for such a big, um, you know, formative impression on my life. In one of his shows, um, he had basically said that how, because I think he's Jewish, you know, he has Jewish beliefs or Jewish, culturally Jewish. Um, I don't know if he's, um, you know, uh, he may be atheist or agnostic, but he had basically said that each one of us, we have a limited bandwidth. Um, you know, our brains have limited capabilities. You know, when you're three or four years old, you don't understand uh, anything about the world. You just don't get it. You don't understand how amazing love can be. You don't understand how bad hate and evil is. You don't understand any of that. And it's, I mean, I slowly realize as I'm getting older that the same thing applies to religion. You know, there's lots of stuff that I just don't. Um, I, you know, there are lots of concepts that Islamically I will not understand purely because I do not have enough brain with enough neurons in my brain to get. And scientific theories are disproven all the time. I mean, as a scientist, one of the, um, you know, I realize all the time, even like I'm a diagnostician now, I see a disease, um, I see the signs of a disease and I think, oh, it is this disease, but I've always got to be open that I'm wrong. You know, COVID people, you, you just look back to COVID and look how, you know, all scientific theories have changed from March until now. You know, the government is apparently guided by science and scientists themselves admit they've made loads and loads of mistakes. The Big Bang Theory, you know, that's now being disproven very slow that actually there's something, the fundamental that I grew up with apparently isn't true anymore. String theory dictates there's 11 universes, parallel universes. So, you know, science, I understand it can be wrong. Um, you know, my religion, it's, uh, there are lots of aspects of my religion that I just won't understand. Um, I'm not... You know, one of the beauties about Islam actually is that, you know, the, there are some absolutes, but apart from the absolutes, nothing is absolute. Um, you know, everything is halal unless he told is impermissible. So it's that sort of thing where, um, you know, Islam gives me that good balance that I can be a normal human being. That's, I mean, that, that's a really refreshing perspective, but also the perspective that I take on Islam, which is quite interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't... Uh, I didn't actually realize that we saw our faith in in a, in, a, in a very same way. Just for the record, I mean, what's your view on on, on string theory? Do you think there are eleven parallel universe? And and also a separate question: Do you think we are in a virtual simulation? <laughs> well, all this is really really interesting because that virtual simulation um, that aspect came about when I saw the Matrix when I was at school. I remember asking my biology teacher. Um, that you know, it could well be that we're all just brains, and then we've got different lots of lots of different inputs. I love the matrix. <laughs> I love the matrix. Right? So, um, the, so, what was the first one you asked me about? String theory. String theory. Um, I, I mean, look, that Islamically, we're all told that after our, you know, after we all die, 
uh, and the day of judgment comes, there's going to be another, um, there'll be another world, another civilization that will start. But it's none of our concern because we're not going to be part of it. So, I mean, look, 11, string theory probably um, uh, some in some way or other um, cements the more abstract concept that, you know, the deeper thinkers in Islam have um, elaborated in the past. Uh, I'd, um, you know, again, I don't know the, there are so many Islamic theologians who have spoken about this. Again, I've not read their works, so I'm not going to purport to be some sort of expert, but I'm sure that, you know, if you, there are, there's going to be loads of parallels between what they say and what the, um, you know, string theorists, their, the theory they come up with. They may not agree on the face of it, but, you know, I'm sure there are unifying forces. It's like the, the old Sufi, the old Sufi principle, where you think, you know, all the different religions, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, well, Judaism is, is Abrahamic faith, but all the different religions, um, probably even Scientology, they're probably the same basis. You know, they're probably mm -hmm. all different representations of the. Of the, of the they're saying the same thing in different ways. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I just want to go back a little, Imran. To mm. so I know you were you were you were. Um, actually brought up in in cardiff yes um and and you mentioned your your bangladeshi origin and, and very interestingly that that your mom's an artist and and your your dad's um was a lecturer at, at university yeah. um maybe just talk us uh, through your experience as a child or a youngster being brought up in in cardiff um what was that like it was happy. Um, Cardiff was, uh, yeah, I mean, I loved it. We were kind of bought in the rural outskirts of Cardiff. I, um, I mean, I just have happy memories now. Bizarrely, I was homeschooled <laughs> for quite a while. Um, kind of my, uh, my, my mum and dad taught me. Um, it's just they didn't really like the school that was there. It wasn't there. The problem was I, I did go to school. Uh, and then I think when I was five, my school was about 10 minutes walk away. When mm. I was five, I ran away from school and nobody at school realized I'd run away and I'd actually come home. Um, and my mum and dad were like, what the hell? You know, you've come home and it's, you know, 1 p.m. What's going on? And then so since then, my parents never sent me back to school. Um, but it was overall, it was a happy time. I mean, I'm actually still in touch with some of my friends from Cardiff, you know, when I was a kid. Mm still in touch with them. We lived on the same street. My parents would just let me go out in the morning and they wouldn't know until it was nightfall. And then I'd come back and I'd spend the entire day, at, you know, the, the, all the other um, Welsh people around on my street. So, um, you know, I'd, and one of the first languages I learned was Welsh. I can't remember much, but I'd be like, uh, uh, you know, it's good morning. <laughs> it's, it's um, yeah, it was a happy time in Cardiff. Um, and I lived there, I think till I was seven or eight. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming you can pronounce all of those really, really difficult to pronounce uh, Welsh <laughs> no, names. <laughs> no, not, not anymore. Not anymore. Nothing. Um, it's very, very um, interesting that you mentioned that you were house-schooled or homeschooled. Um, actually, my wife and I are having this conversation at the moment, and we very kind of keen um, to go down the homeschooling route. Yeah. Um, but it must have been quite difficult back then to do that um because i now i assume it's a bit of a case of here's an ipad and here's your lesson plan and go into it but what was it like for your parents having to do that back then for you and and you as a child do you feel like you've missed anything you've gained uh, what did you gain versus what you potentially missed out um i'm not really so i mean the um 
I guess at home, I wouldn't actually spend that long learning. And it's only now that I'm older, I realise that school is just basically a big, um, big nursery, isn't it? It's a big, it's just a big babysitting club. Yeah. Because um, when I was when I was younger, I'd maybe spend a couple of hours a day. My mum would be teaching me stuff. Um, guaranteed, when I came to, when I moved to Birmingham and I had to go to school, um, the I was, pro- my English was probably slightly behind. Um, but everything else, you know, the, I guess things that are more fact-based like maths and science, I was, um, I was way ahead than everyone else. Um, yeah, I, I, to, to be honest, I've never even asked my mum. That's a really good question. I should ask them, how did you find homeschooling me? Um, I, I, I don't think at the end of it, I had any, if I have, when I have children, inshallah, one day I will homeschool them. Um, you know, the, I will arrange, I guess the biggest disadvantage can be if you don't socialize with other kids. But as long as you build that in and you have a good network, um, it's just school. This is a very outdated Victorian model that we have of school these days, isn't it? I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. uh, it's not how children should be taught. It's like a batch production system. Exactly. <laughs> and they're batched according to the wrong kind of dynamic, which is just yeah, age. Yeah. Um, and it's really scary what we do. I mean, they did this test around... Um, it's called the paperclip test where um, they gave a, a kid at the beginning, sort of kindergarten, um, a paperclip and said, look, can you think of as many uses for this paperclip as possible? And the kid was like, well, how big is this paperclip? I can make a ship out of it. I can make a building out of it and all of that kind of stuff. And they did a sim- the same simple paperclip um, test at the end of year six. And you know, the kids could, have, could think of just a handful of uses, you know, yeah. okay, to hold through paper maybe to pick a lock with it or something like that. and it's just scary that the creativity has been sapped out absolutely. of our kids because yeah. you institutionalize children and it's just you know it's easier mm. to control kids if they don't have an imagination right mm-hmm. um i mean mm-hmm. one of the big th- I, this is the, like you know growing up my mum and dad because there were literally like almost no laws in the house you know you mm-hmm. could, whatever you could think of to keep yourself busy is what you would do um, and that's mm. probably why, you know, at the moment, uh, I thank myself for it. There's, I thank my parents for it. I mean, there's lots of, you know, I just, I have a, an approach that's slightly different whenever I think of things and the, my colleagues around me. And I think that helps in life and mm-hmm. it keeps the zest for life as well. I wake up every morning. I'm really excited thinking today's going to be a good day. Alhamdulillah. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, I'm 33 now. So. Um. Uh, that's a really great way to wake up and I think the people um, you know they underestimate the power of gratefulness and positivity so I went through this period of um, doing accountancy exams which were quite challenging and at the same time also working crazy hours in a job role that I didn't necessarily kind of you know excite me Um, and it was a tough period and I I think I was mentioning this to you when we spoke slightly earlier Um, I kind of did a bit of a self-evaluation what's important to me. But one of those things was I, I, mapping out the values that I want to live my life with. And on that list was, I just need to be more grateful for what I have. And I, th- I think come, coming back to our religion, actually, that's something that's quite emphasized quite a lot, you know, yeah. being thankful and being appreciative for what we, what we have. I mean, again, I, I, that was really exciting to hear about your, your, your journey as a child growing up, especially being um, sort of home homeschooled. So thanks for, for, for sharing that with us. Um, jumping way forward now uh, to what you're currently doing. Mm. So um, I, I guess as a doctor, you would have started off with, you know, training through the NHS. Yes, yeah. Um, 
what was that like? I mean, is our national health system underfunded? Are doctors underpaid and overworked? What was your experience going through that? So, well, I still work in the NHS now. I don't do any private work at all. Um, oh, okay. So I'm, yeah, purely mm-hmm. NHS. Um, mm-hmm. The and, and that's probably um, an indication of what I think of and how much I do love and appreciate that. I think it's mm-hmm. you know it's a it's something that even though relatively speaking, I could earn four or five times what I do if I work privately. I could earn my monthly salary in a day working privately, probably. Um, mm-hmm. So or working three days a month, um, but there is something that you know when. I, I, I guess I qualified as a doctor in 2009 and I've been working in the NHS since then. Um, and it's the fact that I don't need to think about price when I'm treating a patient is amazing. I mean, that, you know, if you, I have done some private work and privately you have to say, well, okay, this much. If I do this operation, it costs this much. If I put this lens inside of your eye, it costs this much. And then you watch the patient struggle and say that, oh, you know, I mortgaged my house for this eye operation. Um, and you'd, that is, some people are okay with it. It just doesn't fit well with me. I find it really difficult, unsatisfying. I've also done, you know, cosmetics privately, and I just don't find it satisfying. Um, I'm not happy when I leave at the end of the day, whereas at the moment, and in my career in the NHS, yeah, it's tiring. Yes, there are, it's, it runs on goodwill. The National Health Service runs on goodwill. And when the goodwill disappears, you'll find a lot of the stuff just doesn't happen. Um, it's, again, the problem is I don't really want to go into too much politics, but just so mm. for your listeners out there, I do see it quite left of centre. Um, you know, I'm uh, probably uh, falling the bounds of centre left. So that gives an idea of um, where what I think about the health service and how I feel that it should, you know, I, I love this welfare state. And it's kind of, you know, it's the irony that, you know, as Muslims, you kind of think, oh, you know, Muslim countries are the best. But it's actually, you know, a, a Christian based Western nation that's showing Muslim countries how it should be done. I mean, National Health Service is beautiful. Yes, it's underfunded. Yes, it has problems. But I mean, come on, this principle you cannot argue with. You cannot. This just shows that you hear, it really disturbs me when I work in hospitals all over the country. And as a result, over the years, I've done, as a result of, you know, every time I go to Jummah and then I listen to a different imam, some imams are, you know, denigrating the West. And you kind of think, I just want to leave that, that, that Jummah then when I hear this, because you kind of think that, mm-hmm. hang on a minute, every day I work in an institution that is a thousand times better than, um, anything that's available in the Muslim world. I mean, as Muslims, we should be learning from this. Um, so I think the NHS is amazing. Yes, it's underfunded, but I hope it continues forever. Mm-hmm. And, and so your, your experience, was it tough? Was it difficult becoming uh, a doctor? Um, those long hours where you kind of been, you know, really, really pushed. I mean, you, you must, must have had some really long, tired nights. Um, how do you sort of bring yourself through that? And now on reflection, um, I'm sure maybe you, you still have some of those those tough days like we all do uh, at work. I mean, does your fate play a big role in keeping you going? Yeah, so the, um, I mean, if I could, 2009, I was probably the last year where we didn't have to do the European Working Time Directive. So um, the European Working Time Directive 
uh, it kind of limited the amount of hours we can do. And above that, you got paid exponentially. So there were financial penalties on hospitals for overworking doctors. But my first year, they didn't implement at my hospital. So I'm regularly, I was working in Paddington. I would kind of get up for the first tube. At, so I'd get up at 5.30, be ready for 5 to 6. I'd be at the tube station and I'd be at work to 11 p.m. And it would happen every day for a year. Um, I mean, that was soul destroying. I would literally, the weekends, I would just sleep and I met nobody. Um, A&E was similar where you're working 12 nights in a row. And at the end of the 12th night, you are literally talking to people who aren't there. You know, you're basically hallucinating. Um, and that sort of thing is all outlawed now, thank God. Um, and those are difficult. The faith gets you through it just because, I mean, I, I don't actively think at the time as, oh, because of Allah, I'm going to get through this. Or, you know, um, you know, I'm doing this for Allah. I don't think I thought that at the time. But then there's underlying grounding where you taught the sanctity of human life. And it just felt like this human being, I have to do everything I can because I value my life so much. Uh, imagine their life in front of me. And therefore, you know, it's the sort of thing where I'd make a, I wake up at 3 a.m. Oh, my God, I forgot to check the blood test results. And luckily, I lived close to the hospital. So um, when I was in, uh, when I was doing my foundation, my second year as a doctor, I'd like I'd run into the hospital and check the blood test results. And it would probably take half an hour for me getting up, checking them, then thinking, "Phew, thank God they're okay." I remember I rang one of my consultants at like 11:30 at night once to ask because they were put on the wrong feed. The, these patients they couldn't eat, so they were given a, a parental feed, and they were put on the wrong feed. And he didn't get mad at me at all because I rang him at 11.30 or 11.45 and he was obviously asleep. The next day, he just said, thank you for caring. And that's, you know, these sort of little words, they mean so much. And then he was just saying that you obviously, you know, you really value the lives of the people that you treat. And these things keep you going um, throughout your career. And now I'm a consultant, I've got juniors. I make sure that if they do something that's really good and impressive, I tell them because you need that to go through. I mean, it's, one of the problems, I guess, with the welfare system is just that people may undervalue the service that you provide because it's free. So they, because it doesn't cost them, they don't realize their treatment costs 10 grand. They just think it's all free and they think, oh, you're a public servant. So you do face, especially these days, where there's, like, there's not that much respect towards, there's not as much respect towards hierarchy, and rightly so, than there was before. Um, but a lot of junior doctors do get um, a lot of, you know, they face the brunt of public wrath and public anger. And I do tell them that, yeah, these patients are angry now, but they'll always remember you for the rest of their life and you've done a great job. And that helped me through. Underlying, obviously, the you know that value of human life, I was probably taught by my religion um, and other people taught me this and they were influenced by religion. But in saying that, there are lots of people who are atheists and agnostic and they all have these same values. So um, mm -hmm. are these values based on Christianity? Um, or an Abrahamic faith, it could well be because you know they're brought up in society that you know still Christian Christianity is the main religion. Um, but uh, you know, generally, like almost ninety nine percent of people are good, right? And and I, I'm not quoting to be an Islamic scholar, but I'm really sure that there's not limited space in heaven, and I'm really sure that <laughs> almost ninety nine percent of people on earth are going to go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I think we we are fundamentally good. You know, it's it's uh, we we our mind is our biggest enemy, and it sometimes exactly. sometimes that corrupts our way of thinking and and gets us involved with the wrong types of people, the right wrong yeah, types of yeah. influences that 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 change our sense of um, what's right and wrong. 
um, uh, what was it like being a junior doctor and now versus your current um, um, role as, I guess, more of a senior consultant? And um, I, I guess just give people people who may be considering this as a career path, give them a flavor of the type of work that you might be involved in. And I know from the doctors that I speak to who are my friends, a lot of them complain about paperwork. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know that's part and, and, and parcel of, of the job, but maybe talking to that a little in terms of do you, do you feel the fact that we keep cutting admin stuff from our um, oh, yeah. hospitals. How is that likely to impact on on, on your current role so as a doctor? The, you've hit it on the head. So I'll come to the earlier bits you said, but this last bit, I mean, you've given me goosebumps that you've realized this and people in government don't. Literally, the admin staff are probably the most important people in the hospital because without that, the main issue I have now is, you know, I take out cancer from a patient and we send it off for histology. But the staff aren't there to, you know, I need to keep a record myself. And the staff aren't there to tell me, has it gone, has it not, to process it, to tell me what the results are at a timely manner. You know, it kind of the stress falls on me to do it. And I cannot blame the admin team for missing appointments or not sending appointments out because there just aren't enough of them. You know, there should be 30. Instead, there's 10 people. And they're, they're dying. They go in, they, they frazzle, they're trying to do the best they can. But people need to understand this. For this reason, the appointments are missed. So there's, there's delays, diagnoses are missed. Um, and they're trying the hardest. But the admin team is fundamental. In, and that includes managers as well. Everyone maligns managers in the NHS. But no, it's fundamental. You need quality people going into work. They need to be recompensed well enough. Otherwise, they'll leave. Um, but... If that's sorted, then you can sort out the rest of the NHS. You know, it does trickle. It all The whole thing trickles down. Um, the, you, you asked me about how the, the juxtaposition between when I was a trainee and consultant. Yeah, I mean, to any people who are, if you're thinking of becoming a doctor, training is difficult. It's really tough. I have not been on holiday since 2012. I used to go in on all my annual leave. I literally go in, so I can finish and become a consultant early. I would go in and operate on all my annual leave. That's all I would do, just so I can get all my surgical log books done. Um, I last went to Turkey, Istanbul in 2012. not been on holiday since then. Um, well, I went on a two-day conference to Barcelona, but then I was spent in the conference room and then I flew back. I didn't actually get around Barcelona. wish I had. Um, it's worlds apart. When you become a consultant, oh, my God. You know, When I finished my training, I couldn't believe it. This is what life feels like. I mean, it's sweet. You smell the air. The air is sweeter. Suddenly, there's no pressure. Um, you've, there's a different sort of pressure, I guess, because the buck stops with you. But clinically, the training that you've had provides you with almost all the answers. And if you don't know when you're a consultant, nobody else does either. Um, but the most difficult aspect of being a consultant that I didn't have as a trainee was human politics. So trying to deal with other humans in the workplace. And every, all other consultants have a big ego. And you're a young consultant who's hip and happening and knows what's happening. Um, mm. And you argue with them, and they have experience, but then you have the latest knowledge, and it's a big clash. Um, mm -hmm. Especially if you're, you know, it's really interesting. Everyone, I don't know if you're into football, but Paul Pogba, everyone always, you know, oh, yeah. he's so arrogant. Um, you know, he's flashy. Graham Sunes always trying to kill on Paul Pogba, right? Even though I'm a big fan of Paul Pogba. <laughs> um, and I'm a Man United fan, and I'm saying to him, people mistreat you, leave. But it's the sort of thing where, mm. especially as an ethnic, 
you have to have this certain, you know, bolshiness, a certain sort of flair about you. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you won't. You, know, be heard. you won't. You won't be heard. You won't lift your head mm-hmm. above the parapet. And when mm-hmm. you do, people are going to shoot you down because there are, they'll say, "Oh well, there are lots of Caucasians who aren't like this. They don't have flair. They don't need to. You know, their voices mm-hmm. are heard." So mm-hmm. it's the sort of thing when you go into an organization and you might be a young, um, you know, and again, I don't think it comes down to race, but intrinsically, because of my life experiences, I have to be a bit more bolshy than maybe the average person would be. And maybe I, I'm mm-hmm. a bit more outspoken than the average person would be. As a result, there are a clash of heads. When you're a consultant, you know, you face this. As a trainee, I didn't. As a trainee, they'll just be like, oh, you know, he's, you're a trainee, pipe down. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. But now as a consultant, people tackle you head on and say, no, you know, I disagree with your way of doing it. Um, so this is, you, this is you learn. However, overall, at the end of your training, it's sweet. So if anyone's entering medicine, it will be tough. Just write off the next 10 years of your life. You'll have amazing experiences. I will encourage everyone to be a doctor. You touch a side of humanity nobody else does. You see a side of humanity nobody else does. And you're in a profession where every day you're getting blessings for what you're doing. If you're sincere, you know, if you're Harold Shipman, it's a different, a different thing. But mm-hmm. if you're sincere, you'll get blessings in, all the, in everything that you do. Um, but it is tough. I mean, yeah, you cry a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm macho and I cry. Mm-hmm. I cried. So can, um, I, uh, can I just pick up on the financial aspect of such a long training period? Um, yeah. I know you've started up your own med tech startup or biotech yeah. startup um do you think that's necessary now for doctors to have to wear two hats to have to look at how they can better support themselves financially um if if they want to take you know their own personal wealth to that next level um no so the i think you know if you want to be if you want to be comfortable then um an nhs salary is fine i mean i'd Throughout training, I was just, I just had an NHS salary, nothing else, and it's perfectly manageable. You know, I guess it also depends. If I had a family, it might be slightly different. You know, I'm not married, don't have kids, so it's just myself. You know, I can get away with living in grotty one-bedroom apartments, that sort of thing, and living in my own filth. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know, I just, I think that if it's a very comfortable salary. Yeah, you're not going to drive nice cars. Um, you might struggle to send your children to private school, but it's a nice salary. When you're a consultant, and, you know, again, I was just like everyone else, you suddenly you've got this, you're a consultant, people come and they want private work off of you, you offer it. There is a lot of money in private work. So you can, if you want to, you can earn, you know, three, four hundred thousand pounds a year quite easily. But then one of my consultants, uh, when I was training, said to me that just use private work for the icing on the cake. Don't use it to supplement your salary. Others, you'll be inappropriately operating on people for more money. And that's one of the reasons why I just stopped operating. And I thought, you know, it's, the lines are blurred where I don't know. They need the operation, but they don't. But then you can easily push them towards having it. And then you'll get three grand for 20 minutes work. I see what so you mean. The, the start, the med tech startup I, is just because, you know, I've had, a, I'm, I've made a handheld retinal camera. Um, you know, at the moment, if you go to opticians, you have to sit in this huge camera and they take mm-hmm. a picture and the optometrist doesn't actually know how to interpret it. They send it off to a doctor to interpret it. And you have mm-hmm. to end up paying well. And in, cheap, in in poorer countries, they don't have access to this at all. So I've made this handheld retinal camera over the last three, four years when I was a trainee. Because again, I've got nothing to do outside of work. Um, mm-hmm. And it works. And you know, they put dilating drops in. This one, you don't actually have to put drops in. You just put it against your head and it takes a picture. 
and it's all neural network, artificial intelligence based, so it provides a diagnosis. So we've created that. Fantastic. I've had some private funding mm -hmm. for it, um, but mm -hmm. you know, the it's just it's more my desire to create it rather than anything financial. And if, the, the biggest okay. difficulty I'm having at the moment actually is that if I quit my job as a consultant, I'll probably earn less. Um, because mm -hmm. trying to get funding is difficult. It is, yeah. That's that's really an interesting insight because I hadn't realized that actually, you know, um, you can't get by. I mean, it's, it's it's a case of doctors being proactive and wanting to do more and, you know, wanting to be better and create stuff, yeah. which is fantastic. I think it's a great thing. We're actually coming towards the end um, now of our, our podcast, but um, what we sort of like to do towards the end is just um, have a bit of a more of a fun round. But before we dive into that, I did have one sort of additional question around. Sure. Um, you mentioned having to be a bit more bolchy, I think is that, that's the word yeah. that you used. Um, and, you know, having to get your voice out there, especially on topical issues, you know, with, with the impact of COVID-19 on, you know, maybe understaffed hospitals and all of that. And, and I know you've been a lot more vocal now on social media. I think your posts have, have you know, over hundreds and hundreds of, of likes, which is, which is fantastic. How have you been kind of dealing with having that platform? Do you now see a sense of responsibility in terms of, um, you know, being that voice for your colleagues? Um, what would you like to use that platform to achieve? Yes, I mean, well, since, especially since I guess you know you become more senior doctor, the, you you have a standing in community, and people ask you, you know, your opinion matters. Um, you know, yeah, I, I wrote this post recently, and uh, just saying that the government will look to blame certain parts of society and don't let them. Um, and as a result of that, I mean, even local media have got in touch and asked for interviews regarding this and the COVID situation. Um, I I do think if you have a platform, it's important. Um, to uh, to be that voice, especially if you're part of an underrepresented community. Um, you know, to all the young Muslims out there, um, young anybody out there, I'd say to them, just shoot for the moon, right? And go for it. You're going to fail. Everyone's going to fail. But it's important to to put your voice out there. And you, I'm not saying you grow a thick skin, but there will be people who will oppose you. Engage them. You know, engage them. You don't need to, you know, listen to what everybody has a view in society and listen to them and, and engage them and try and uh, robustly respond. I, I, you know, I, I feel like it, it's, a, it's a must for me to, you know, uh, if I have a valid opinion, and I know I have a valid opinion, it's a must for me to express it because there'll be other people who just don't have the voice or the platform. And um, that's the only way that uh, certain aspects of society can be treated. I mean, I don't want and I dislike professional victims. We're not being professional victims. We're just making a point that this point of view um, is there and it needs to be addressed. You know, these are actually inequalities that are out there and people need to be, in inverted commas, woke about it. I mean, you have to raise it in order for it to be heard. And I think that's, that's mm -hmm. the right thing to do. Um, Okay, so um, thanks a lot for your time, Imran. We, we have this final word association game that we do at the end of our podcast. Um, so I'm just going to fire a word at you and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be one word. It can be whatever comes to your mind. So the first word that I have for you is cars. Cars? As in driving cars? 
Oh, yeah. Ferrari 360. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> um, Air Force. My dad. My dad was kind of he's, he's in the Pakistan Air Force when he was younger. That's very cool. I mean, have you ever taken an interest in flying planes yourself? No, no, no. I haven't. Um, but then, yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, I've just been a mm. car man. But my dad's stories are fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, Sheffield. Happy. Um, everyone's so happy there. Uh, I never. I moved up from London for my training. Uh, mm -hmm. And I never thought I'd stay there. I thought I'd move back in a year and like six years later, I'm still up there. Um, people are lovely. Happy place. I did visit Sheffield once and people are really friendly. And there's a real sense of community there. I don't know if you've got the yeah, same yeah, feeling. Yeah. But yeah I mean. it, it seems like it's, it's like a city, but it's tiny and everyone knows each other and everyone talks to you and everyone's really nice. Like, you know, yeah. the other day, I went, Greg's open for the first time on Thursday. I went in there. And then they recognized me from pre-lockdown. They were like, don't pay for it. Have it for free. I'm like, no, I can't come back if you keep giving it to me for free. Like, <laughs> Out of interest, what do you get from Greg's? <laughs> vegan sausage roll. Like anything, vegan sausage anything roll. <laughs> You're the reason why Greg's is doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> Single-handedly, yeah. Um, so um, two more words for you. Cycling. Oh, that's uh, uh, love. I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that I've, uh, you know, my brother's always been into. Uh, I did, I used to use it to commute when I was in London, but now I'm, I'm obsessed. Uh, the adrenaline rush, um, I can't stop. For anyone listening, Imran has some fantastic um, pictures on his social media of him cycling to really beautiful, <laughs> picturesque places. I didn't even know some of those places existed in the UK. So, yeah, it's eye-opening for me as well. It's all about vacations <laughs> now as well. It's all about yeah, vacations. Yeah. I'm turning to yeah. support the local economy. <laughs> <laughs> so, last word, social media? Dangerous. <laughs> it's really dangerous. dangerous. It's the sort of thing that, you know, it's a necessary evil that you got to have, but... Um, you know, the way it has the power to polarize society, um, it's stressful. I've learned from my own mental health that if I post something and I'm worrying about it, just delete it and don't post it. Because it's not even what I'm saying is controversial. It's just you'll have people who hate the fact that you have an opinion and can voice the opinion and they will come. I don't know if you know Guido Fawkes, who's like a right wing blogger. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, he yeah. picked up on a few posts a few years ago and uh, there was a junior doctor's contract strike and they picked up on a few of it and the hate that you receive um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't think it's down to race or um, beliefs or, or ethnicity it's just you have an opinion that they disagree with um, but it's so polarizing that I actually had to block my Facebook account you know I, I deactivated it for um, a week or two because it was just getting overwhelming you just keep getting messages of people telling you to you know kill yourself that sort of thing um, you know, I don't know if they, uh, if there's actually any venom behind it or they're just doing it or they're bots or whatever, but it's dangerous, but it's a necessary evil that you must have. I mean, this is how you, here you have something amazing that allows you to share an opinion, broadcast the entire world, use it, but just learn the limitations, learn that if you post something, it's going to be there forever. Um, it learned that, uh, it can also harm you, uh, just like everything else. Just like everything, everything. Else I was about to say that, you know, it's, it's all good things um, have a have a bad side to it as well. All useful things have a detrimental um, side to it as well. It depends on how we equip ourselves to be able exactly. to use it yeah. in the right way.
Fantastic. Thanks, Dr. Imran. It was really great speaking to you. And, and thanks welcome. a lot for your time on, on a Sunday morning. Um, if you have liked this podcast uh, and you would like to hear more from us, please um, do like, um, comment, and uh, subscribe. Um, if you do have any suggestions for guests that like you'd like to see on the next podcast, please do reach out um, our emails on our social media pages. But for now, um, assalamu alaikum and uh, speak to you again.